Hey there, little chickadees. Since the last time I did a podcast, I've been in Fargo, North Dakota. Let that settle in. Decided, hey, spring break. I know how to party. Fargo. Fargo. Take me away right into the blizzard. And the funniest thing happened when I got there. William H. Macy greets me at the airport and he hires me to kidnap his wife in order to extort a lot of money from his wealthy father-in-law. Yeah, it happened. And then Francis McDormand shows up. Oh, hi, Josh. Welcome. You going to help us with this little murder mystery? I sure hope so. I sure hope so. It's a tough accent. I mean, I like hearing it, but it's tough to do. Oh, hey, Josh. Have you seen our hockey team? Have you ever played hockey? Are you a fan of curling? With the stone? We have some mighty great breweries out here, Josh. Anywho, I actually liked Fargo. If it weren't for the movie, how many people even know that there's a town? I don't even know if I should call it a city, but there's a town in North Dakota called Fargo. But that movie put it on the map. Really good movie. And if you're picturing where I was over my spring break, uh, yeah, just picture that movie. Pretty accurate. A lot of snow, a lot of ice. Ice Ice Baby flew in to Minneapolis. That's three and a half hours. And then a three and a half hour road trip to Fargo. So needless to say, I got sick. The whiny kind of sick. I didn't whine in front of my wife's family. Wouldn't do that. But once I got home, I was, oh boy, really feeling it. Maybe I should go see a doctor. Consumed with my own sniffles and sore throat. And it was a real sore throat, okay? All right. Even though I realize I'm soft when it comes to being sick and women are stronger, I truly believe that. That's a gender observation. Women are absolutely stronger when it comes to just being sick, functioning while sick. FWS, functioning while sick. I'm very bad at that. I mean, I still do it. But I think men are just weaker when it comes to dealing with it. I don't know why. I don't have any logic behind that. I just do. And my wife recently had strep. So clearly I was thinking, I probably got strep. Doesn't that just sound bad, strep? Strep sounds much worse than it actually is. Sounds like it should be associated with jaundice and whooping cough and malaria. Is it whooping cough or whooping? I don't know. Probably whooping. Cool whip. But because my wife had strep, 10 days had gone by since she took her antibiotics and then I start to get that pain throat. That pain in my throat where it goes, yeah, I don't want to swallow anything. Yeah, I'm good with swallowing. Maybe put that on hold this week. It's pain. You start to fear swallowing. You go, you wince each time. Oh boy. Have some tea with lemon and honey. Have a Ricola. Have anything. Nothing helps. Popsicle? Nope, nothing helps. So I went to Kaiser. And oddly, my wife said something that was interesting. Interesting. She said, maybe it'd be a good thing if you had strep because then you just get the antibiotics and then you're healed. You just get the antibiotics and then you're healed. Now, nobody wants strep, but they did the old cotton swab on me to the back of the throat. 
The nurse I had was the most frazzled lady in the history of healthcare, Linda. She spoke to herself as she did things. Come on, Linda. I know you're tired, Linda, but come on, get the cotton swab out. And I didn't know how to respond. Occasionally she was talking to me. It was just us two in the room, and occasionally she was talking to herself. Oh boy, Linda, do you need a good night's rest. So you're feeling bad, huh? I was like, me or you? Who are you talking to? And she was wearing a mask the whole time. And she had dark glasses. I'm not making this up. My nurse Linda from Kaiser, Tara Linda, you could barely see her face. You just saw this perm. She had big curly hair, dark glasses, and she was wearing one of those masks. The old don't get sick masks that you wrap around your ears and you pinch around your nose. And she told me to wear one too. So I said, okay, Linda. And she swabbed me. And then the results came back. Negative. So I didn't have strep. No antibiotics for me. Why the fuck am I bringing this up, right? Hey, sir, why are you bringing this up? Why are you even doing a podcast if you're sick? I don't know. Bad decision. But let's just keep rolling. I didn't get the antibiotics. But then coincidentally on 60 Minutes this past Sunday night, they do a piece on antibiotics. And I learned a lot. Here's what I learned. Superbugs are eventually going to kill us all. So antibiotics are supposed to kill off any bacteria infection. We get. But they're so overprescribed, and now people can bend the rules and get them online without a prescription. People throughout the world now have access to just, yeah, pick up some antibiotics. Like it's vitamin C at the grocery store. So people are taking way too many antibiotics. Doctors are prescribing them way too often, and the antibiotics are smarter than the infection, smarter than the ailment. So they mutate. Stay with me on this. And when they mutate, they attack our sickness. So we always figure, yeah, I'll take some antibiotics. It'll just knock out my sickness real quick. Yeah, but the mutations will eventually become stronger and stronger and stronger. And then there'll be superbugs that could, and I quote, quote 60 minutes, superbugs could kill 10 million people per year by 2050. All right, it's 2019 right now. 60 Minutes claims by 2050, 10 million people every year could be killed by superbugs because antibiotics will be less effective. The more and more and more we put them in our system, the weaker and weaker and weaker they are to fight off the bacterial infections. Simple logic, it makes sense. It's a really important piece. Do you hear me? Really important. I hope you're taking notes today. So next time your doctor just tries to give you the old antibiotic prescription, say, hold off on that, maybe. Maybe I shouldn't be flooding my body with that, in a sense, weakening my immune system. This isn't about me, by the way. This is about the human race. I know I've talked about conflict, violent revolutions and wars. Forget all that. What's going to wipe us all out? Superbugs. Super viruses. Super bacterial infections that we just simply don't have the prescriptions for. If you're not scared right now, that's because you live in the present moment and you're not worried about 2050, 31 years from now. I'm a little worried, a little bit. I guess we'll put our faith in doctors to keep chasing the disease with the next vaccine, with the next great pill. Doctors have proven to always have the next great pill. But just think twice the next time they prescribe antibiotics. That's what this podcast needs to become. Just mini news reports 
like you get on the nightly news that nobody watches. Nobody watches. It's awful to be sick, though, right now. It's all sunny. The sun's out. And you just got to be under a blanket with your cold sweats. Shivering as you watch another segment of HBO Real Sports with Bryant Gumble. How good is Real Sports? I actually heard Bobby Lee once say it's great to be sick. Gives adults an excuse just to be a lump on the couch. Kind of true. Let's be honest. Kind of true. When you're sick, it gives you that freedom to just eat comfort food, wear your sweats all day, curl up on the couch, not do anything with the excuse that I'm taking care of myself. <laughs> taking care of myself today. And catching up on a lot of movies. And eating a lot of Chinese soups. Egg drop, wonton, war wonton, hot and sour, egg rice, egg flour. Give me all of it. Or it's Passover, so matzo ball soup. Give me all the soups. Give me the soup Nazi episode. Give me that Seinfeld. By the way, Seinfeld episodes are like Beatles songs. They're all good. It's kind of funny. We now all have a thousand channels. Hulu, Amazon Prime, Netflix. A thousand cable channels, Xfinity, On Demand. But how many of us just go back and watch the same damn shows that we've always liked? Weekend Update talked about that. Colin Jost and Michael Che or Shea. I think I bring them up a lot. Recurring characters. But they mention that. Of all the channels, yeah, most people still just watch an old Law and Orders. Me, I could watch all the new shows, all the new original programming, but an old episode of Seinfeld from 1994... That's pretty much going to satisfy me, especially on sick days. I read Netflix right now has 700 original program shows. They spent $8 billion just hiring any actors, any screenwriters. But aren't they oversaturating the product? All right, let me get away from that. But being sick, like I was saying, uh, it's sunny out and going to Fargo, you fly into the whiteness of a blizzard or flying into Minneapolis. You just fly into whiteness. And I actually had a moment. The pilot was not too communicative at the first part of the flight, but then it started to heat up. Belt on. Keep those seatbelts on. You might feel a little uh, uh, turbulence. Nothing to make of it. Nothing to make of it. Just a little bumpy ride. Nobody worry. And then it became the kind of turbulence where people worry, but I'm still not worried. I'm good. And then just about a half hour before we land, he, he comes on the loudspeaker your pilot perhaps we're going to be landing in a different airport in a different region because we might not be able to land where we're supposed to land that's all he says and then i think 30 seconds later he goes yeah looking at the possibility of duluth duluth i don't know anything about the geography of minnesota where's duluth turns out it's two hours from where we want to land in minneapolis and then four minutes goes by and he goes Actually, we are going to go ahead and just land in Minneapolis. Belts on. What changed? What changed? I'm looking out the window. All I see is whiteness. That's all you see. We're flying right into a blizzard. And I finally had the thought, uh-oh, what if this is it? I rarely have that morbid thought when I'm flying. I'm not scared of flying. How courageous do I sound? I'm not scared of flying. Put me in the sky. Fear of heights is not synonymous with fear of flying. Like, I would never walk across the Golden Gate Bridge. That sounds fearful. I'm always amazed how many people want to walk across the Golden Gate Bridge. That fence is not high enough. does not look enjoyable. But flying? Flying's flying. I'm okay with flying. 
I'm okay with turbulence. But when you fly into whiteness and you can't see the city below and the pilot says, yeah, maybe Duluth, eh, actually Minneapolis, what changed? You got to communicate. A pilot who does not communicate enough is a danger to us all. Just keep talking. Just keep your mic on. Just do a little podcast from the cockpit. Keep talking. Just talk us through it. Tell us it's okay to land a plane when you can't see anything. Tell us things like that. Eventually, when we landed, everybody on the flight started to clap. That's never a good thing. When everybody starts applauding, that goes to show we were all unified in the fear that we were just about to die. But no, we made it through and landed in the frozen tundra. We did it, everybody. Applause. Hey, we're all clapping. What are we clapping about? Let's really dissect this. Let's analyze. Why are we clapping? Because we're alive. We're actually clapping because we're alive. That was probably the scariest flight of my life. And that probably scared me into sickness. Are you done hearing about me being sick? Of course you are. But no antibiotics in my system. All right, here's something to think about. Virtually everybody you meet has their own identity, correct? Yeah, there's a lot of different personalities, correct? Sure. But psychologists in the 70s whittled it down to an acronym OCEAN. So this will be a fun little game. Think about your personality right now. You're either going to be on one side of the fence or the other side. Ocean. The O is for openness. The C is for conscientiousness. The E is for extroversion. The A is for agreeableness. And the N is for neuroticism. So openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism, ocean. All right. So the big five personality traits. Whittle everybody down into the big five. And see who you are. It's always weird to try to understand why our personalities are the way they are. It's always really weird. You go, am I like my mom? Am I like my dad? Am I like a grandparent? Am I my own person? Did I just hatch out of a bubble and I have no ties to anybody in our ancestry? But I was reading this study and I was like, yeah, it kind of makes sense. It could come down to the ocean acronym. All right, openness. Ask yourself, are you open to new experiences? Do you like variety? Or are you low? on the old openness chart where you just like your own routine, your habits, new experiences, not interested adventures. No, thanks. So start there. Think about yourself or you could think about whoever you're married to. Think about one of your kids. Think about everybody in your world. They're on one side or the other. No, no both. No. Yeah. I'm kind of both. Anybody who says I'm kind of both. I'm kind of this and that. No, 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 no. Whittle it down. Be honest. You're on one side of the fence or the other. Me personally, I don't have like the biggest travel bug. I don't just wake up and say, I need to go see Thailand. I need to go see Guatemala. But I still like novelty. I still like the spice of life. I, I like my routine more than anything, but I don't know. Actually, forget it. But one thing about the study, it said people who took magic mushrooms became more open to new experiences. They did a study in 2011. People who shroomed took the hallucinogenic drug psilocybin said they came out on the other end if they were not open, more open to new experiences. Interesting. All right, go to the sea and ocean. Conscientiousness. If you're conscientious, you're organized. You have a strong sense of duty. You're dependable. You're disciplined. You want to get straight A's. If you're low on the old conscientiousness scale, eh, you're more spontaneous. You're a free spirit. You're a freewheeler. Maybe even careless. You don't care about planning or organization, one side or the other. You go into a classroom and say, I need an A, 
Or do you go into a classroom and say, yeah, we'll see where today goes. Maybe I'll be motivated. Maybe I won't be. I don't know. All right. The E in ocean, extroversion. Are you an extrovert? This is a very recognizable personality trait. If you're an extrovert, maybe you're a social butterfly. You like to party. You like to go out. You're chatty. You want to be with a crowd. You see a crowd, you go, I want to join that. So you're assertive. You're happy to interact. You walk into a party, you're ready to chat, 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 chat. Introverts, on the other hand, they need alone time. Not saying they can't interact. They just need alone time. Their brains have to process interaction differently. It's like you truly need to recharge. Just like a computer or a cell phone, your brain needs to recharge. I am clearly more of an introvert. Even though my two professions involve a lot of talking, the two professions I've ever had, sports radio, high school teacher, you got to talk. You got to talk. At times, even performance-based. But still, afterwards, silence is golden. So I have realized I'm more of an introvert. Who knew? Who knew before I took a look at the ocean chart, the ocean scale? The A, agreeableness. Where you at on this? This will measure the extent of your warmth and kindness. So if you're an agreeable person, you're likely to be trusting, compassionate, empathetic. If you're disagreeable, maybe you're cold. Does anybody who's cold actually know they're cold? How many people are actually honest with themselves about their own traits? Like if you're a jerk, do you know that? Do you deep down know you're a jerk? But agreeableness, you're on one side, kindness. On the other side, you're tough to work with. You're tough to collaborate with. People don't like you at work. Maybe they tell you that to their face, to your face, or maybe they say it behind your back. But if you can't cooperate with others, you're disagreeable. You're probably tough to work with. And then finally, the N in ocean. This is interesting. Neuroticism. Are you neurotic? People immediately think of George Costanza. George Costanza is the most neurotic character in TV history. Right? If you watch Seinfeld, every episode is just a deep case study on a neurotic man named George. He worries about everything. Obsesses about everything. He once quit his job because his anxiety over not having access to a private bathroom was just too overwhelming. He couldn't live in that world. So it's a personality trait. If you're high on the N, neuroticism, that means you worry a lot. You slip into anxiety, even at times depression. Now, if all's going well, neurotic people will even find things to worry about. That scares me. I don't feel like I'm totally neurotic, but there are days where everything's going well and I still have to battle my brain to stay on the positive track. Not to say I'm cynical, but just you don't want to get the to-do list churning in your mind. You know the to-do list? Everybody has a to-do list. Shut it off. Put it in the fireplace. Burn it. That's a good day. But if the to-do list just doesn't stop, it's on loop, then it's kind of like you're looking for more worries. You're looking for more things to be concerned about. But they say if you're low on the N, if you're low on the neuroticism, then you're emotionally stable and even keeled. So here's the part of the podcast where I compliment myself. I think I'm an emotionally stable person. I don't know. But it says neurotic people. Sadly, there was a study claiming they die younger than emotionally stable people because they get so nervous that these people often turn to drugs, tobacco, alcohol to numb some of the worries and anxiety. All right. So that's ocean. But the question at the end of this reading was, could a person actually change? That is the toughest question ever. And there was a psychologist at the University of Illinois who said, quote, for the people who want to change their spouses, which a lot of people want to do, don't hold out hope for others. 
But the psychologist said, if you're willing to focus on just one aspect of your own life and you're willing to go at it systematically with work, there's increased optimism that maybe you can affect that domain of change. I don't know if people can change. You can improve in certain areas, but I wonder if your O-C-E-A-N, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism is just kind of set in stone. Sometimes you just have to accept, I am this way. This is who I am. It's probably a healthy way to get through life. Even the things about yourself that you don't like, just go, yep, that's me. I could try to work on it, but not just going to hate the person in the mirror. You got to love that person in the mirror. You must give yourself to love. You know the old song. You must give yourself to love if love is what you're after. Open up your heart to find a key. The tears and laughter. All right, here's an observation. Most students don't guess. I have 15, 16-year-olds throughout the day. There's such an intense fear of being wrong, anticipating an embarrassing moment in the classroom that it keeps a lot of kids quiet. These are kids that have great ideas, great insight, and they're just silent throughout an entire school year. What a struggle that must be to know deep down that you have something to say, but you're so worried about being wrong or maybe I'm thinking outside the box too much that you just stay quiet. I wish there was a cure for that. Good teaching will try to bring in everybody. But if you're teaching a classroom of 35 kids each class, an assortment of different personalities, an assortment of different issues going on with each and every one of them. It's tough to think you could just bring out the best and everybody, even that kid who's quiet from August to June, that kid who's quiet, still gets good grades, but just won't participate much in discussions. And you have to make participation part of the grade to try to get that kid to say something. They won't. They won't. Threatening any student with a lower grade for not participating, that's kind of a fragile area. You want them to try, right? You want everybody to try. All I could do is tell them, hey, I make mistakes. I'm wrong all the time. I'm flawed. You can be flawed. We can have embarrassing moments in public. It's okay. But most students, you see, they blindly follow the trends. Instead of going their own way and finding their individualism, you see this. This is my big observation lately. Very rarely do you see a unique sense of identity at that age. You know, most of them are kind of into the same music fashion. Vaping is big. Snapchat is big. Yeah, most of them are with the masses. And of course, I realize a lot of you are thinking, yeah, but later in life, that's when you find your identity. Okay, but how nice would it be if it was just earlier in life? Wouldn't that be nice? If we cultivated an assortment of identities because there was just zero stigma on getting things wrong? I don't know. I feel like a forum discussion where you want everybody to participate is nearly impossible at times. Maybe that's across the board in life. So many people are scared of being embarrassed. I think it takes a certain level of confidence to say, I'm okay with being embarrassed. If you're an egomaniac and you feel like you have to be right at all times, you're clearly flawed to be in that mindset. It's not realistic. But once you realize I can be wrong, I can make a giant fat mistake. That's liberating. You got to teach that. All right, if I say mistake right now, I'm talking about a little mistake, maybe a medium-sized mistake, but I recently heard about the biggest mistake I've ever heard. Now, most mistakes we make as humans, you could probably rectify them. Most, not all, I realize. 
there are some crimes that you don't exactly get a second chance for. But how about this for a mistake? Have you ever heard the name Ron Wayne? Ronald Wayne? I had not. What I'm about to tell you is the biggest monumental mistake I've ever heard in the history of finances, in the history of money. You'll never hear anything this ridiculous. So Ronald Wayne is the forgotten name of Apple. Prepare to be floored. Buckle up, you bastards. All right, that's a little harsh. But in 1976, Ronald Wayne was in that trio of Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak. If I say Apple, of course you think of Steve Jobs. And if you know anything beyond that, you know the name Steve Wozniak. But Ronald Wayne? Who that? Wozniak and Jobs went to this guy, and they invited him to be a part of the crew, to provide administrative oversight, and to document the new venture. And Steve and Steve said, we each are taking 45% of this idea called Apple. Before it was a business, just the idea. We're each taking 45% a piece. That leaves 10% for you, Ronald Wayne. This story is so ridiculous, you're going to think I'm making it up. Or if you already know it, listen to it again. If you don't know it, here it is. So Ronald Wayne receives 10% of Apple in 1976. He was coming off a slot machine idea that plummeted. So he was weary of new startups back then. And Steve Jobs, as a young man, he's able to get a $15,000 line of credit to buy product materials for Apple's first ever order for materials. And they have a legal partnership now with Ronald Wayne. They're going to give him 10%. And he accepts. 12 days later, 12 days later, he returned to the registrar's office and renounced his role in the company. He didn't want to be involved. So he relinquished his 10% equity in exchange for, I need a drum roll, $800. $800. Today, his 10% share would be worth around $100 billion. He'd be the second richest person in the world. I can't believe this story is true. He got 800 bucks for selling his 10% share of Apple in 76. Today, he would be the second richest man in the world. He's still alive. He'd have about $100 billion. Instead, and I read his bio, he lives in a mobile home park in Nevada where he sells stamps and rare coins. Stop, right? Stop. Is it April 1st? Is this an April Fool's joke? I don't even care if you've heard this before. Hearing it again and again and again doesn't make it more believable. This is the definition of an unbelievable story. I never heard this until last week. And now I got to share it with you. He's the guy that actually illustrated the first ever Apple logo. He was supposed to be the tiebreaker in all decisions because it was going to be a three-man business. But instead, he sells his shares for 800 bucks. What? He said Apple would be a significant risk. I just can't risk it. So I know it kind of sounded like I was saying, hey, don't be afraid to make a mistake. Yeah, but don't do that either. Don't do that either. All right, I'm wrapping it up with a story and a book review, all in one. Gather around, everybody. Take a seat on the carpet. I've been working at the high school I've been at for four years, so I'm a senior now. When I first got hired, I met the librarian at the high school, you know, just like you meet everybody, and she had all the qualities of a librarian. 
just straight out of central casting. She had the ability to say, shh. She had sweaters. She had glasses. She had a nice librarian haircut. She had it all. I think she made first team all librarian in 1994. Honorable mention from there on out, but she had a good run. And she retired about a year ago. But we became very friendly. And what do you talk about with a librarian? Books. Books and books and books and more books. And I like books. And the book I wrote, the book I published, it was released about a year before I started at this high school. So eventually I told her, you know, I wrote a book. You know, maybe that'd be a great way to promote it. Get it on the shelves of this high school library. And she was excited. Oh, was she excited? Well, she was librarian excited, which is kind of tempered. Like, huh, that's nice. But she said, I'd love a copy. I'd love to read it. And I gave her a copy. And every six months I would check in. Hey, how's it coming along? She'd go, oh yeah, it's good. I knew damn well she wasn't reading the book. She was not reading the book. And then I started to pester her a little bit because she was acting like she had to filter the process. Like, well, I got to read the book first before it goes on the shelves. Fine. She was starting to create the rules as she went. And she was going rogue. The rogue librarian this summer. She actually did make up some rules about what books get on the shelf and what don't. I don't know. Sounded a lot like censorship to me, huh? Sounded like these restrictions were uh, going against our First Amendment. But I said, sure, I'll wait. I'll wait for you to finish it. And then one day I come in, this is towards the end of year two, and I say, hey, when's the book getting on the shelf? My librarian friend. And she looked very concerned. She said, well, there is a bank robbery in the book. I was like, yeah, there is a bank heist. It's not a spoiler alert. That's part of it. It's part of the synopsis. Yes, there's a bank robbery. And she actually said, I don't want kids getting the wrong idea. What? You thought kids would read my book and rob a bank? Am I that influential of an author? I say no. And I didn't get mad. You can't get mad with a librarian, but you just kind of have to say, well, I'm not sure you understand how books work. That sounds too condescending. I didn't say that, but I was like, are you sure you can't just get it on the fucking shelf already? Didn't say that either. Didn't say that. Didn't say that. Kept it calm and said, all right, well... If you can't get it on the shelf, I'll take back the copy. And at that point, she finally got it on the shelf and retired. All right, fast forward to a month ago. I'm just walking around the library, the high school library. And what do I see? Crash and Burn by Artie Lang. Crash and Burn by Artie Lang is 300 pages describing heroin overdoses, prostitute-filled blackout booze binges, and some of the most insane party stories I've ever read. Yes, I read the whole book. I checked it out of our library. Could not believe it. It's one of the worst books ever. But I couldn't stop. Couldn't put it down. Artie Lang from the Howard Stern Show from Mad TV. From Crashing on HBO. He's a stand-up comic who is certainly troubled by the demons of substance abuse addiction. I mean, bad. But what's he doing? He's an opportunist. He's making money off of it. His first book, Too Fat to Fish, very good. More of a memoir. This is his follow-up. And he even says on the last page, I just wrote this to make money. He knows people love these stories. People love hearing stories of party animals. It sells. It's a genre that sells. It just does. Nobody reads a memoir and says, I hope everything went well. No, we like to hear about the crash and burn. And that's the name of the book. In and out of rehab, disappointing his mom, his sister, his girlfriends, disappointing everybody, you know, suicide attempts. It's like an intense book, but it's fueled with drug addiction. And I was just thinking the whole time, 
Did this librarian green light crash and burn by Artie Lang but had an issue with my book? Like she was doing the old summer ordering list and came across this one and said, huh, yeah, okay, Artie. Artie's going to tell the story about sniffing every pill in his medicine cabinet and then walking through traffic before he tries to stab himself in the stomach with a samurai sword and then does a belly flop onto a fire pit at Burning Man. And yeah, you know something? I think this will work. I think this will work on the shelves. I guess my point is all books should be able to be on the shelves. I don't care what the genre is. I don't care what the subject material is. If kids are interested in reading about something, it's been published. For the most part, let them read it. That's how we have to cultivate a love of reading. I think a lot of assigned readings sometimes cause kids to treat it like an assignment. But pleasure reading, how do you instill a love of pleasure reading? You put books like Crash and Burn on the shelf. It's not going to make you smarter, but it's good. It's good that it's up there on the shelf. So put mine too, suddenly facing reality. This whole thing is just one big ad for my book. All right, I had some other things to say, but guess what? That's it. I'm going to end there. Give it the old five-star review or rating on iTunes, won't you now? You do a little Fargo follow on Twitter, huh? At jrosenberg957 now, won't you? Don't you? All right, that's episode 55. It's in the books. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> <laughs>